Okay, so welcome to the CSD at WCU podcast. I'm Elizabeth Grillo. I'm a professor in communication sciences and disorders at Westchester University. I would like to introduce our panelists tonight. So we have Dr. Karen Perda. Uh, Dr. Perda, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us where you are, what, you know, you're a speech language pathologist, whatever you'd like to share in the beginning. Sure. Uh, I've been a spe medical speech pathologist, uh, voice SLP and singing voice specialist for over 10 years. I recently completed my PhD at the Ohio State University, and I'll be joining the faculty at um, Ohio University this fall. Excellent. And also, I'd like to introduce Dr. Adam Simonowski, who is a laryngologist, voice specialist, and let me have him introduce you, introduce himself to everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Uh, so my name is Adam Simonowski. I am a, a laryngologist uh, right now I'm based out of Philadelphia and making a transition down to Houston, Texas, to uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And I focus on you know, a variety of, of disorders, uh, mostly voice and airway, but also swallow. Excellent. So let's get started. I'm going to begin by asking a question to uh, Adam. So your career trajectory is so interesting. Please tell us about the evolution of your career. You started out, I believe, as a teacher, and you then became a surgeon. You became a laryngologist eventually. So talk to us about how that evolved. Sure. So uh, I was a, a public school teacher, a, a middle school science teacher, to be exact, in Brooklyn, New York, for, for uh, three years before transitioning into medicine. Um, and, uh, you know, it was fantastic. It was, you know, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to kind of be when I grew up. And so I, I spent some time in the world of education, really enjoyed teaching, um, enjoyed the kind of fast paced nature of, of that and uh, realized that that I kind of had that, you know, kind of fire still telling me to, to keep keep going. So I, I went back to school and uh, and got a medical degree. And, and while I was a medical student, uh, I listened to a few talks actually by Bob Sadiloff, who is, you know, a, a real leader in the voice space. And um, he was looking at voice problems in teachers and it kind of all in retrospect, I, you know, I said to myself, wow, like this is, I, I, I remember this, he's right. Uh, and that got me into otolaryngology as a, a field. And uh, the more I worked in that space, I realized, you know, the patients in laryngology, the types of surgeries we do, the improvement in quality of life is really uh, I think really special, and I and I, I like the patients and the surgeries and and working with voice therapists and speech language pathologists. They're you know they're critical. Um, so uh, that kind of led me to do fellowship with Steve Zaitels and Jim Burns, two other you know great leaders in our field. And uh, you know here I am, uh, finally done. Just just about a year a year out of the oven. Um, you know, <laughs> fully trained. Excellent. So did you actually have a voice problem as a teacher? You know, I did. I found, I would find myself vocally exhausted at the end of the day. And um, there's some really interesting literature, um, you know, looking at when teachers have voice problems. And it's it's interesting because it's in the beginning of their career and towards the end of their career. And, in the, you know, there's this idea that maybe in the beginning, you're like, you're, you're working and you're learning that, well, this is what's going to be expected of me. And then towards the end, it's, you know, you've developed a pathology or, or muscle tension or something of that nature, but um, it's a real problem. And I saw it in colleagues I worked with, and again, retrospect is 2020. Um, and it's, it's truly, really prevalent in, in teachers. Yes. About 50% of teachers at some point in their career will have a voice problem. So um, as speech language pathologists, I think we need to do a better job of preventing such issues from occurring. And a great place to start is teacher training programs 
which is kind of what I'm doing with my work is trying to get, you know, to the teacher training programs to see the value in, you know, and it's not, it's not a big commitment to learn what they need to do. We're not talking about weeks and weeks and years and years. This is like a four week kind of crash course and it gives you the tools you need to be successful um, in the classroom. So that's, that's really interesting that you had the perspective of what it's like to be a teacher and deal with your voice for long periods of time. And then you transition to become a laryngologist to help people who are teachers who are having issues with their, your vo with their voice. That's really fascinating. I, I love what you're saying, because it is, you know, a, a short crash course in vocal hygiene. It plays such dividends, I think, down the road. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I love your work. Oh, thank you. So um, how did you because I, I know when you when you finish your medical degree, um, you then I'm trying now, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to remember what happens, but eventually you pick a, a fellowship to become a laryngologist. And what that process is pretty complicated, I believe. How did you choose to go to Boston and work with Zytels and, and, and Burns? How did you pick them as where you wanted to be? Uh, you know, throughout the, you know, medical training, throughout residency, it's five years, you're trained in ears, noses, and throats, you do all, you know, all, you know, kind of go through it all and you start figuring out what you like. And through all of that, you're, you know, you're reading the scientific literature, you're going to conferences and, you know, you start seeing the names that are popping up over and over again. And you're really, um, you know, you go talk to different people and, you know, you kind of whittle it down based on your interests and what other people are doing. And, uh, and then I, I finally met uh, Steve Zytels. And I mean, he's a, he's a real personality in the best way possible. He is so enthusiastic. He loves what he does. He is, has done some really amazing things for the field. And, uh, you know, when, when I got the phone call, it was an easy yes, um, you know, and, and it was a fantastic year, um, unquestionably, uh, you know, so I couldn't remember. It's only a year, right? Yeah, it's quick. It's it's 12 months. Yep. 12 months. Okay, yeah. wonderful. Okay, so Karen, let's move on to you. Tell us about the evolution of your career. How did you become interested in speech language pathology? Where have you worked? Eventually you earned a PhD and now you're going to become a professor. So you have lots of uh, really wonderful information to share with us about your evolution. Yeah, so I guess my experience was kind of similar in that I found this field through like my own vocal problems. Um, so I, you know, as a my freshman year of college, I was the lead in a musical and blew my voice out, had swelling, had voice problems and was referred for my own voice therapy. And I was kind of like, oh, this is, you mean this is a job? All right, cool. So, <laughs> but unfortunately the um, small private college I was at did not have a speech pathology program so that's when I transferred to Westchester and that's uh Liz knows the red that the rest is kind of history I, I believe I was um was I in your first class that you taught like your first year at Westchester yes you were in my first <laughs> speech and hearing science course that's how far we go back Karen that's how long it's been yeah um so and then, um, yeah, I, I went on. So, you know, we did research. I went on, I did more research in, uh, during my time as a master's student at JMU. And then, you know, I knew I wanted to do voice the whole time. Um, but through my clinical placements, I also gained an interest in swallowing. So I took a clinical fellowship in Southern Florida that was half acute care, half outpatient. And my office was right across the hall from an ENT. And I actually, as far as students are concerned, you know, I, I get a lot of people email, I'm going to go off on like a 
quick tangent on this, I guess, but, um, you know, I get a lot of singers emailing me like, oh, like, I love working with singers. How do I become a voice SLP and work with singers all day? And it's kind of like, that's not, that's <laughs> not really how this works. Um, it, but to that end, I actually would stress to students, you know, there's only a small handful of voice specific clinical fellowships in the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think there's something to be said for first being a generalist and then going on to specialize. So what my acute care experience gave me, it gave me modified barium swallow studies. It gave me heavy stroke neuro experience, but I was still also across the hall from an ENT. So I still got to go in the OR with the ENT. I still had voice outpatients, but when you're right out of school, you need to still be kind of sharpening all of your skills instead of um, uh, staying that laser focused. But then anyway, so I stayed in that position for two years that I took, uh, I was in outpatient ENT clinic. I worked for a private practice of 25 otolaryngologists and I was there for five years. But then during that time, I also PRN or did per DM work at our large 800 bed uh, certified stroke center through Ohio Health in, in Columbus. So, uh, I, and then when I went back for my PhD, I, I, it was nice. I, I continued my per diem work and I continued working as a clinician while I was also, I was completing my PhD full-time, but also still per diem as a clinician. And then my outpatient ENT experience in the hospital, I've helped start their fees program. I train, I, I teach a lot of swallowing endoscopy and voice CEUs for medical SLPs. And I, I've, I've trained many uh, grad students, clinical fellows and practicing SLPs in, in the skill of endoscopy. Uh, I just technically graduated with my PhD yesterday, even though I, uh, <laughs> even though I, I defended in December, uh, but that, my, thank you. And that is also something else that I would recommend. Uh, that was a recommendation uh, made to me was to, you know, finish, finish school, finish your fellowship, become a clinician for at least a couple of years, because that's going to give you a better idea of, you know, why, why you're doing what you're doing. And it's going to deepen the types of questions that you ask. So I worked full-time for seven years before I went back for my PhD mm -hmm. and my PhD took me about three and a half years mm -hmm. to complete. Awesome. And now you'll be a professor in the fall. Correct. Awesome. So Ohio University. Yay. Woohoo. Okay. So going back to Adam, um, Adam, what are the most typical patients you regularly see in your practice, their complaints, their disorders, their treatment? Sure. Um, you know, it's kind of fun because a lot of times I'll just see dysphonia uh, as, as a complaint for a new patient. So that can mean so many things. Um, you know, so many things can be going on functional, structural, um, and, you know, so I see a, a good number of folks, you know, and again, a professional voice user is not just a singer or an actor. I mean, it's a teacher, it's a professor, it's a salesperson. It, 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 it's, you know, you think about these days, like we talk to Siri, we talk to Google, we talk to, you know, it's this voice centered world, you know, more and more. And so, uh, you know, people have a variety of kind of complaints. Um, so uh, definitely see a lot of benign vocal fold pathology, cysts, polyps, nodules, things like that. Um, you know, see, uh, my most common complaint has got to be muscle tension, you know, I, uh, 
my voice therapists love me for the for referring you know uh, everyone for, for voice therapy for muscle tension um, but on that spectrum as well you know and kind of bleeding into you know other problems you've got dysphagia for all types of reasons from reflux to zankers uh, things like that um, that require in office fees uh, or a lot I sent quite a few patients for MPS and esophagrams uh, and you know you also uncover some malignancies some immobilities uh, and and then you have the complex airway patients, especially after COVID. I mean, there's so much stenosis uh, that I'm seeing, subglottic and glottic, um, and you know that's that's been a real challenge uh, and interest of mine. So um, it's that, that's kind of uh, the the really quick um, su summary. Yeah. So what's a typical week for you? Like, what can you give us a, a sense for like Monday through Friday, or if you're even working on the weekends? Like, what's a typical week for you? Yeah. Um, so I was on call last week, so I, I worked the weekend too. And it was, so we have Monday uh, is my OR day. So um, doing my cases on that day, uh, Tuesday, I've got a, a clinic, Wednesday, I have a full clinic, Thursday is a half day clinic and Friday is kind of OR clinic, uh, kind of depending on what's going on. And the, the reason I have got usually one to one and a half OR days a week is because of the volume of in-office procedures I do. Uh, so um, and Baylor, the way it's set up, it, you know, I'm in clinic with a, a voice therapist or a speech language pathologist. So we're just kind of running around and um, it, it's organized chaos. So we're both strobing, scoping, uh, you know, and kind of going from patient to patient, seeing patients together, which I think is really, really important. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think I'm talking to two voice therapists. I, 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 I think, you know, that's why I like to run my clinic. I know there are different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, and then throughout the week, you know, an airway emergency will come up and I'll run over and help in the operating room with some other folks, um, you know, but uh, it's usually, you know, fairly scheduled for the most part, um, you know, with about, you know, one and a half days of OR and the rest being being clinic with, with in-office procedures, everyone's getting a scope. So when you're on call for the weekend, does that mean you know, you're so Saturday, Sunday, when they, when there's a patient with a, a, a larynx need, they're, they're calling you. Yeah. And even, and even if I'm not on call, my colleagues are great. They'll let me know, you know, I'm the larynx guy. So if there's a, a, a larynx problem, I'll go in on any, any weekend if it's, if I'm around, uh, uh, just because I, I like it and I usually can do something, especially if it's like an immobility. So if someone has a thyroidectomy on a Friday and they wake up really dysphonic, they'll usually have a fees or an MBS and they'll aspirate or penetrate. Uh, we'll just go in the next day and at the bedside, um, do an injection medialization, right. give them a better voice, better cough, better swallow. Jelena on Caswan just published a really nice abstract, um, just looking at the strength of the cough after, uh, you know, immediate bedside medialization. And it's, it's, it's pretty impressive and, you know, you can prevent aspirations and, and you know, yeah. Talking to two people who I know, I know, know this. So that's um, yeah. so important. Like logistically, how do you, how do you accomplish that? Are you, do, are you able to do that all by yourself from the holding the scope and everything? Or do you have an SLP in there to help you with that? So if I'm lucky, I have an SLP. Uh, um, uh, that, that's the most convenient. I, I use a, a transoral rigid uh, scope most of the time. Um, so I'm able to hold the, the injection needle in my hand and the scope in my other hand. And then ideally I have an SLP because you guys understand the position and kind of how things should be, you know, how the patient should be sitting, how the tongue should be, you know, be positioned. Uh, whereas a nurse is really great, don't get me wrong, but they there is... Um, 
a skill set they don't they don't have, and I, I think they'd be comfortable with me, me saying that. So um, so it's great if I can be there with an SLP. Uh, we position the patient, and uh, and yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a two person job, I'd say. And, and so, you have, do it, so you do a trans or transoral. Yes. Yeah. And the scope is transoral. Yes. Not flexible. Yeah. Wow. And this is the patient's bed, hospital bed. Yeah. That it, and I, I'm, I, you can't tell I'm six, six, I'm very tall and the beds don't. And so I'm doing all kinds of positioning. Um, you know, the it's, it's, but it usually works well. And, and, and listen, I, I'm not like a magician. I can't say that I can get it hundred percent of the time. Um, but, but I think with good topical sedation or anesthesia, I should say, and, you know, a great assistant, I think a lot of these are really doable. And if they're really not, we can go to the operating room and, and do it. So Adam, is that common practice now what you're suggesting? The literature really suggests, you know, immediate or near term injection. And that, and honestly, that's defined differently. I mean, I, some of the papers I'm, I'm referencing off the top of my head are, you know, within three months, but I'd say uh, day after, if you can, if you see them, they're dysphonic, there's immobility and you have the resources, I think immediate injection is best for the patient. I'd be curious, um, Karen, I, I don't know what your experience has been. Well, can I, can I, I'm, I'm a patient who had this, I had a thyroidectomy, I had thyroid cancer. Um, and I had a vocal fold paralysis, not, not, you know, this is like, uh, 18 years ago, but I had a vocal fold paralysis that lasted for about two months mm -hmm. and I did not have inject injection laryngoplasty. I had, I was coughing, but I wasn't, I mean, I didn't care if I was penetrating or aspirating, whatever. I'm going to penetrate aspirate. I was a young woman. I was 29 years old. What's going to happen to me? Yeah. So, you know, and I'm a speech pathologist, so it's like, I'll do what, you know, don't tell me what to do. So <laughs> So in my case, the nerve healed on its own, thank yeah. God, yeah. you know, in six to eight weeks. But um, for, for those patients, you know, I understand that you inject the fat or whatever the substance is. Eventually, the fat or whatever it is is going to run out of the system, correct? So you're hoping that the nerve heals, right, within that spontaneous recovery period, and it's going to heal on its own, right? You're, so your goal is to get an immediate improvement of swallowing and voice. Yeah, I mean, that's I, whenever I consent a patient, I, first of all, I inject uh, a hyaluronic acid. So it's restful, oh, the same thing that we like, you know, plump lips with or things okay. like that. Yeah, prolarin. Um, pro people yeah. really like prolarin. It doesn't last quite as long. Prolarin is a carboxymethylcellulose. Those are great. You know, they're because they're, they're great predictable substances with a predictable um, kind of, uh, you know, residence time. They, they will leave uh, at a predictable amount of time. Um, and, but you're right. I mean, if you're, you were 29, you're, even if you did aspirate a little, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're, you have good lungs, you're probably going to be okay. Um, but I would say why suffer for those two months, if we can do a, a five minute procedure, um, and give you that voice and. Yeah. So at the time, it, at the time, at least I thought in, in, in the common practice, then 18 years ago, people were not doing trans oral you know, injection laryngoplasty, or am I saying it right? Injection mm -hmm. laryngoplasty, yeah. I mean, were they doing it back then, Adam? Maybe I just didn't know. You know, I, it's funny, <laughs> I wasn't around by then, 18 years ago. Am I still young? I, I, uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 So, I mean, the way you're presenting it is like totally new to me because the, back then you would have had to go to, I would have had to go to the OR, you know, mm -hmm. this would have been an additional procedure for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you're suggesting now is there you're in the patient's hospital room, you're locally and, you know, anesthetizing them and you're doing it right then. That's amazing. Yeah. That's Karen. Is that, is that your experience? Do you, do you see a good number done um, bedside? 
The way I've seen it done is with a transnasal scope and yeah. someone holds the transnasal scope and usually the physician mm -hmm. goes in transorally to actually do the injection. I've done a um, few that way as well, yeah. So, and you know, that's commonplace in outpatient ENT with a laryngologist, but our, so I mentioned, I also did per diem work. Mm -hmm. I am per diem at the hospital where those physicians also consult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've had many situations of patients who needed that, mm -hmm. but the SLP like rehab department was not able to lend the manpower it, because of like administrative billing reasons like they don't have a way to like bill for that slp's time to yep. then assist with that procedure yeah. so that's been like the red tape of why more injections aren't happening at the like at the acute level like those people are then getting discharged and then yep. getting them later yeah um but i have had a couple of situations where you know i like called the physician and really pushed for it and then in those cases they just took the patient to the or yeah. Wow. Amazing. I, I think for those I see, I mean, the, the folks that are most memorable for me were from, you know, fellowship. We would see all these big cardiothoracic, you know, yeah. they had some big procedure. They're going to be in the hospital for right, a while. Right, right. You know, those are the, you know, they're not going home the next day. Right. And, you know, you have, you both have seen this, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I, I really think they get a, a good benefit and um, got a few irons in the fire as far as some research to, to prove that. But I think it really, you know, um, the one that the one that was burned forever in my brain was a 23 year old who had just given birth maybe a month beforehand. She about a month before she found out she had a tumor on her brainstem. Oh gosh! So that was removed, and basically, like her whole like voice and swallowing lights, yeah. her entire like left side was flaccid. And in those situations, like you're getting no closure, like you're not getting complete velar elevation. Yep. There's just no yep. valving closure happening at all. So that really limits what you can even like, of course she was like choking. She couldn't even, she, I mean, she was choking on her own saliva. Right. It was yep. so bad. Like that limits and that limits what you can even do and how effective, sure you can go in with exercises but the exercise isn't really doing anything mm -hmm. when somebody's that weak. So, and, and, and it was like a week before Christmas. Oh no. So I, um, I called, so I called the physician on that one and she went to the OR and luckily like the uh, injection made enough of a difference that she was at least able to get some mashed potatoes down with her family on Christmas day. Like, Oh, oh good. Oh my God. Yeah. And like, a really she good... at least then had a cough and like, wasn't having to like put her secretions in a cup anymore. Yep. Like. There's a really good paper out of the, from the, I think it's the USC group um, out in LA about, you know, they compared high vagal versus, you know, a more proximal, I should say distal, um, a, you know, nerve, nerve damage, right? And that high vagal is, just, you know, you, you lose so much, um, you know, brainstem, that area. I, I you know, I'm sure reflux, sensation, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, things you're going to run into. Um, but, you know, uh, Wow. Yeah, well, obviously it wasn't just the cord that was out. Exactly. Yeah, the very, whole... like yeah, that whole so like yep. at that point, like your exercises aren't even gonna do anything. That like in those in a situation like that, that injection is even more important because you that's the only way way you're gonna even begin to maximize what you've got left. Right. So um this kind of leads into the next question, which are, you know, what are some of the most unique cases you see that require laryngeal surgery? Um and 
talk about what what those are uh, sure i mean it's funny just as we talk about this immobility i mean it for me i was thinking about this question and it's funny how i think what are the simplest surgeries are for me kind of some of the most um impressive i you know the, the immobility too in the operating room you know push a vocal fold over you know with the patient awake and literally tune their voice i mean it's a surgery i do frequently i love doing it i love it um, you get instant gratification. The patient is happy on the operating room table. Everyone in the room hears it. It's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and you shove, if you shove the Gore-Tex, I use Gore-Tex. You shove the Gore-Tex in the wrong, wrong place. You can hear their voice gets really tight and you're like, oh, oh, let me just move it a little bit. And then their voice kind of, you know, uh, you know, comes back to normal. So it's things like that. It's, uh, other things, you know, I, with Zytel's, you know, he sees some, uh, fairly active vocalists, um, and, uh, you know, to take off what it, what appears to be really subtle pathology that you can pick up on strobe to, to treat that, to give them, you know, a course of voice therapy and hear them after the fact, it's astounding um, what subtle pathology does to vocal efficiency. Um, so, so, you know, those aren't special, you know, there are some really amazing airway surgeries we've done, you know, you can take out some advanced cancers and patch the hole in the airway with cadaveric aorta and oh, wow. you, know, you can spare the patient radiation. I mean, there's some really cool things happening. Those are kind of more extreme, but I really do find a lot of joy in, I think some of the, um, I don't want to call them simple because it's still a surgery, right? But they're maybe more um, common pathologies I see. So when you're working with, uh, pro well, professional voice users or anybody who has a benign lesion and you want to maintain the vibratory layers of the vocal folds, what it, what do you have to be so careful about doing when you remove those? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Very careful. Um, it, it's so true. I mean, like I. I you know, you, you hear these horrible stories, you know, and they're not mine to tell, but, you know, you hear them about plenty of people in, in Hollywood and where, you know, I, I've not seen any of these people, you know, but you hear what happened. You're like, oh, you know, that SLP, that superficial lamina propria is liquid gold or gelatinous gold. Um, so you have to be so careful and know your layers. I mean, something that I do a lot is, you know, in the OR, I use a saline infusion to lift the epithelium away from the superficial lamina propria. And then you can dissect the epithelium off the SLP to not damage it. I mean, that, you damage that, you're, you're, oh my gosh. But, yeah. but it's so small. Like how, what's so special about the microscope that allows you to see that? What do you, like, what do you see the different cell layers? Is that what you do? You, it's really amazing. You, so we're obviously very zoomed in. Our instruments are, you know, so small and, and uh, you know, I don't want to say our surgery is harder than other surgeries, but it's tough because you're working through a metal tube, you know, everything's about a foot cool. away, you know, and you're using, you know, these little, you're, you're supporting your hands, but you're literally, when you peel that layer off of the epithelium that sits on top of the superficial lamina propria, you can see it's translucent. And then when you get to the nodule, which I usually call them fibrovascular changes, you can see it thicken like a callus. And you can kind of nip at it and you, and as you nip at it and take the, those fibrovascular changes away, it becomes translucent, almost like a monolayer of cells. You lay it back down and, you know, you're, you, you've done your job, but it, you know, so you just, it's just, man, you've got to be really, really careful. I'm, I, uh, it's yes. Yeah. And you know, that's why you spend years training to do this, but, um, what so do you is there a possibility of like epithelial um transplant like you know are we thinking of that are people working on that 
So I think one of the coolest things that um, I think a lot of labs are working on, I personally am not, but I'm excited to see um, where this goes in the next five to 10 years would be an injectable substance. Um, you know, there, people are trying to develop it with several different, you know, plasma rich uh, uh, substances being used. There's like some peg proteins that are being used and they're some, we're trying to develop when I say we, I mean laryngologists and scientists interested in voice, a, a substance that you can inject sub-epithelially that will replace or, or mimic the superficial lamina propria. And the best example of this is Bill Clinton. You know, if you look at videos of him from 20 years ago, you hear kind of a Southern gentleman, whatever, you know, fast forward to how he sounds now. It's, it's, you know, he's so strained and you can hear that strained voice. Um, but if you were to be able to restore the superficial lamina propria and inject something in there, whether it lasts for three months or a year or forever, he would sound like his old self again. It's, it's, it's really amazing what people are doing. So that's what they're working on now. Go ahead, Karen. At one point, I remember, like, I mean, one of my first times at Voice Foundation, they were, they were trying like vitamin A to combat scarring. I don't know if that ever went anywhere. You know... It's so I'm I'm so young. I think I'm young. I'm 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 young for a little while longer. I think you know. In in all of this, you know, I'm my biases are very much based on my training, not on my experience yet. I'd say you know, I've had a year of experience. Right. You know, more several more years of training, and I've always been trained. Scar is so tricky. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone has found a good answer for vocal fold scar. I tell people. I nine times out of 10, there's not much I can do to help your scar. Um, and, and if someone has a better idea, like, I guess you can listen to them, but I, I the last thing I want to do is make your voice worse. Right. Um, but you know, it's not like you I, could like excise the scar and then inject something else that would like take the place of it or like, I mean, even something that I do that, that's, that's, it's published is this saline infusion. And I can, again, this is something else I can do in the office. You can go transorally and, and infuse saline just below the epithelium. So between the epithelium and the superficial lamina propria. And in, you know, the three of us, I'm sure you'd see, well, maybe not me because I talk a lot, but you see the, the epithelium just lift and because there's no scar, but um, the pathology has shown, you know, or the pathology, you know, they've checked on slides and, and whatnot is, you know, when you inject that saline in someone who's got scar, it does lift it and break some of those adhesions, but frequently it ends up laying back down and those scar, you know, the scar redevelops. So, um, you know, do you get a huge benefit? Some people love it, swear by it. Um, I haven't found a um, surefire way to take care of this. I, I guess eventually that, that substance will, will wash out anyway, so it doesn't last. And right now it's saline. Yeah. It lasts minutes, maybe a couple days or so, oh, wow. um, you know, but, but if we get something that is, has a longer residence time, great. It is more gelatinous. It can, it can behave like a, like an SLP Then maybe you could excise the scar, inject this, this gel. And now you've restored the mucosal wave. I mean, it's kind of pie in the sky. Is that like an area of, of the field in the next five to 10 years where you hope to see more advancement, where we try to find something that, you know, does a better job of replacing that wave movement? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would love that. that would, I mean, I think about big cancer cases where you've got to take out, you know, a, a chunk of the vocal fold, you're going down to thyroretinoid. So you blasted through the epithelium, the SLP, you know, you're through the ligament, um, you know, and that, that muscle, what's left will re-epithelialize. And if you could inject a substance underneath the epithelium between the epithelium and the muscle, maybe you'd have more of a wave and a better voice. So oh, wow. interesting. Cool. Um, so let's move on to Karen, because I wanted to make sure we 
talk to Karen about her journey with voice therapy. Um, how have your training, your therapy skills evolved over the years and why? How and why? Well, the why is because through experience, you kind of like learn what works and what doesn't. Um, the how, I would say again, um, experience, but, um, you know, you're armed with, you know, you leave school and you're armed with the, you know, the typical things like resonant voice therapy and vocal function exercises and make sure people are breathing from their diaphragm and all that <laughs> kind of like, you know, old school textbook stuff. But then when you really think about it and you experience it, like, you know, our voice therapy attrition rates are still kind of like higher than they should be. Uh, and you, you know, like you're, you're armed with the best tools that you have, but just cause there's the best tools that you have, doesn't mean like that's the best that the field can do necessarily. Um, I, I, I would say that taking my first Estel course definitely changed the way I, I, I do voice therapy, but also, um, studying various different vocal pedagogies for singers. And like, let's be honest, a lot of our voice therapy approaches originated somewhere in the performing arts mm -hmm. like it with like you know basically like elocution lessons or diction for actors or exercises for singers we basically take have taken all those concepts and have applied them to a, a disordered situation is it's, it's usually the origin of most of what we do um but i think i think the big things for me is trying to train my ear in a more physiologic way. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, so that's, that's, that's a problem, right? Like voice is so subjective and um, you know, two people could be listening to the same voice and they might use different adjectives to describe that same voice or they might perceive that voice differently. But one thing that definitely helped was the fact that I've done over 6,000 laryngoscopies and I've seen I've seen how uh, changes in what the tongue does or what the false vocal folds are doing, uh, for example, um, in the shape and size of the piriforms, and you, you you see that physiology going on, and then you 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 it gives you an opportunity to hear okay what does that sound like, and one thing I would even do I was fortunate enough to be able to do I would even do real time scope biofeedback with the people who tolerated it well to to compare and contrast their voice targets. So um, I'm fortunate in that I was able to train my ear in a fairly accurate mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't know like, oh, well that sounds more resonant because it moved, the sound moved forward. Okay, well, what's response, what moved forward? What was responsible for that? Mm -hmm. And there's not really a whole lot of research that correlates auditory perceptual qualities with the actual changes in the physiology mm -hmm. uh and there there's some there's you know there's a decent amount of like scope I, I don't mean scope review papers i mean like actual endoscopy papers um and there's there's some of that but we could use more of that that also correlates with acoustic output mm -hmm. and, and perceptual ratings because really your ear is your best diagnostic and treatment tool and the other the other thing that you're lying, relying on your ear so heavily and it's so subjective, 
you're really trying to take your best educated guess of, okay, what kind of voice does this person want? Like I can hear where they're at, but like, who are they? What are they doing with their life all day long? Like, what are their needs? Are they a recording? Like, do they do vocal combat sounds for video games and they got to go real hard with their voice like two hours once a week? Or are they doing eight shows a week or are they a salesman and they have to talk without getting tired for eight hours a day, five days a week. So, um, and then also taking into account aesthetic bias, like that's not a thing just for singers, that's for uh, anybody who uses their voice. What you think sounds more relaxed or more open or more resonant, you think it sounds better. It still has to be compatible with the way that person perceives themselves like they still they still have to feel like themselves when they're producing the target voice that you want them to be producing yeah and I think that's where I think a lot of times that's where the the disconnect comes in because they were like we're like hmm, here's a resident voice and like maybe that like maybe that sounds gonna work for that person maybe it's not maybe not and, and <laughs> I don't want to be that high in pitch what do you mean like you know most people and, say why are you doing it that yeah, high yeah exactly and um and what we do is so nuanced. Sometimes the change between what they're currently doing and what they need to be doing in a way that would serve them in a much more functional way, sometimes that change is actually pretty minor. Like yeah. sometimes a minor change goes a long way. Yeah. So um, earlier you mentioned Estel. Mm -hmm. So can you tell people what, you know, what's, what is that and how did you learn about that? And how is it different from, you know, what you were doing before? Um, so I would, I mean, I was aware of Estel, uh, you know, probably when, uh, when I was your student, I know, I know you mentioned it, but like, I, I took an Estel course before you did, you did. Uh, but and I was like aware of it, like as one of those many things that's available to singers. Right. Um, so it is, it is many things. I think a lot of people hear the name and they think of it as, um, especially if you're, you're a voice teacher, it. I think it has a reputation as a vocal pedagogy method that's particularly helpful for contemporary and musical theater singers. I think that's sort of it's like general reputation. Um, and a lot of speech pathologists may or may not even really know what it is. Um, but it actually started as a scientific model trying to basically segment the vocal tract into its parts Mm -hmm. and how the movement of those parts then affects voice quality and acoustic output and it tries it tries to pair those things together and i find that's helpful and it's interesting and when i teach my courses for medical speech pathologists who are not who like have a strong background in swallowing um but not so much in voice we think that way in swallowing for example you know whether you're you're doing if you're doing mbs's and maybe you're mbs imp trained maybe you're not but you're rating tongue base retraction you're rating hyolaryngeal elevation and you're rating those things as those vocal tract movements correlate with a functional swallow we don't think that way in voice but we need to be but we need to be because right. those are the things that need that it, it, we need to find out what piece of that system is not functioning optimally and like that's where the answer is that how you instruct and how you get them there that's like a whole kind of like separate debate but yeah. i think physiology is, is is helpful it makes it more um concrete and not every not every patient you work with is going to have a good ear or be a good imitator or necessarily agree with what you want their voice to sound like but they do respond to like oh well that felt 
that that's so sounded okay and that that didn't hurt my throat when I do that or that that didn't make, feel like it was gonna make me feel tired. So, so why do you think, I mean, the Joe Estel, the, the Estel voice training model really has been around since the 70s, 1970s, right? Um, around that time. Yeah. So why, why do you think it has, and we're still not, there's still not many of us in speech language pathology, you know, using it to help inform our practice as it relates to, you know, voice assessment, prevention and treatment. So why is it that we have this difficult time, you know, I think the main, I think the, like, what's going on? Why can't we get people to see this? The main, the main reason is because there hasn't been that much like ESL specific, re like, I think the field in general just has way too many sort of models that use different words to describe the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of translating that goes on. And I think that uh, Estol speaks a language that most of the field isn't used to. But I think the, the short answer is there hasn't been that much updated research on vocal tract physiology and correlating that with acoustic voice output. What we do is we have vocal function exercises and resonant voice, like we'll, we'll, we'll research a therapy Mm -hmm. But but we don't read even in the literature. There's not really a great physiologic definition for what is a resonant voice. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just there just there honestly there just hasn't been that much research on it, and the people that do know about Estel, it's, it has more of a, a reputation as more of like the singing performing arts thing. Even though it did start as a scientific model, right? Um, there hasn't been a lot of like continuation and changes and evolution of that model. In, in, within the scientific community. So what do you think we need? How do we do a better job in um, communicating this, getting the word out that, um, you know, this is, a, this is a scientific model that's been around since the 1970s. Um, we can use these anatomical physiological parts of the vocal tract to help define these auditory perceptual terms that we're using in voice therapy. You know, it's there, the, okay. that model's there. We can, we can use resonant voice, you know, fine, but how do we how do we bring them together? Like, what suggestions you have to bridge the two? I think one very practical reason why it didn't take off in a barrier to that is that it was really only accessible through the five day course. Right. And most speech pathologists are don't have that type of time. But I think um, Estel has changed their service delivery, and especially with online teaching in the pandemic, has definitely revolutionized that. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think getting, I think, and, and the curriculum is very much geared toward like singers, teachers of singing. I think you need to adapt the language and translate the language for your average clinician and I don't mean like average voice therapist I mean like your average medical SLP doesn't know anything about voice you mm -hmm. need to present it I think you need to present it like like listen like this is the MDS IMP except for voice and now we're going to go through all the parts that you already know and talk about how that affects output and how that affects what the patient is doing and uh, what are your prompts employees and your bag of tricks therapy options for helping somebody change their behavior? Okay, cool. Those and are it needs to be, questions. it needs to be, and, and I'm not necessarily saying abandoning the ESL terminology, but it needs to be translated into SLP terms yeah. and related to the things we already have. 
What is how what is a resonant voice in Estel terms? What are vocal functions doing? Vocal function exercise. What are your physiologic options within vocal function exercises? And you you really should be aware of that because just going is probably not going to be real helpful. You need to make sure that exercise is being produced with optimal function, or there's probably not a whole lot of point in doing it in the first place. Right. Right. Um, and it, 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 it needs to be related to back to the things we're already aware of. Like, yeah, sure, right. like EMST is a great tool, but like that's another thing I see happen. Like a new therapy will come out and everybody will get real excited about it. And then they'll want to use it for everything, whether it makes sense or not. Right, right. And that's a good suggestion. I think defining what's already out there by the model will help. Um, so I wanted to go back. This is kind of a question for both you and Adam. So uh, because both of you have worked, I know Karen's worked closely with laryngologists, Adam's worked closely with speech language pathologists. So talk about the, the, the relationships and the, and the work that you've done with the other provider and how it has informed or improved patient outcomes. We'll, we'll, we'll start with Adam first. Critical. I mean, I, 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 can't, I, I can't do my job without high quality, you know, access, you know, and a high quality speech language pathology team, impossible. Um, and I mean, I, I prefer to run a clinic with a speech language pathologist in there, or at least down the hall. Um, Cause I can, I can say, Hey, look at this. Like what, what, what am I missing? Or, or what's, what's going on? You know, just listening to you guys talk about, you know, describing, you know, different techniques and, and um, you know, approaches and what you're seeing and how to focus on certain things in a more scientific way. I think about when I describe my strobe, it's this like narrative. I'm just kind of writing. I look at other people and they try and use a checklist. So even the way that I describe what I'm seeing on, on imaging, you know, in, in the clinic is so inconsistent across, you know, institutions. So to have the, you know, speech language pathologist or voice therapist there with me, we can, we're real time having that conversation and that gets the patient better, faster. Um, you know, when they see the two of us talking, I, I, I think it, it, it is, I mean, to say critical is like an understatement. I, yeah. I don't know what's stronger than that. Karen, what, what's stronger than critical? <laughs> so I, I can only think of things that are like maybe on the same, yeah. like synonyms, but not like a strong word. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a team effort and it, it really needs to be, um, because, you know, I, I think there's basically, there's basically, these, these are, these are my definitions. There, there's two categories that people fall into. The, the folds look better than the voice sounds. Mm -hmm. The folds look worse than the voice sounds, right? And then like when you have those two situations, like in the situation where the folds look the voice sounds a lot worse than it actually looks in there. Like that's probably a function. That's probably got a lot to do with function at that point. Or then you get those other surprises where like the voice doesn't sound that bad, but lo and behold, there's like some other like pathology going, you drop a scope and you weren't, you find something you weren't expecting to find. That's probably going to end up leaning more toward like the surgery medical management side of things. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that. I, I mean, I do it, but, but it, it, it is so right. nice to be able to say, like, you know, if you scope before me and I get in there, we're in there together, we're kind of like, eh, you know, and there's going to be a conversation in front of the patient. And I think that benefits the patient. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, you know, you get the patient involved and, you know, these days, you know, they want you to see someone every 15 minutes and, you know, you fall behind inevitably, but 
I, I think it's worthwhile. I mean, we um, where I am where I am in Philadelphia right now, we have a voice and swallow Zoom every month. You know, if there's a tough case, you know, one of the SLPs will bring a swallow and show this barium swallow. Like, ah, what do you guys think? And you know, there there's doctors, there are voice especially, you know, voice focused SLPs, there are swallow focused SLPs. Um, you know, and it's it's like 15 of us. We have some laryngologists from different different universities and it is uh, that kind of cross-pollination because, you know, you guys just talk about things that I'm like, like, I need you guys to do that. You know, resonance, you know, uh, you know, respiratory retraining, stop cough therapy, uh, you know, high allergic elevation, things that I'm like, I know about them, but I need, but I, I you know, um, I, I don't do them, you know, I, I, it's, it's, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great example of how interprofessional practice um, with between speech language pathologists, voice specialized SLPs, and laryngologists are so important to the patient's care, right? We need we need both of those providers with the patient in the middle and the family in the middle, um, because together produces a better outcome than if you were working individually, uh, you know, in your silos. But it's so great, Adam, to hear that you run your clinic and you say, "Okay, SLP, you're with me." Yeah. You know, it's so much more fun too. Yeah, like, I mean, is yeah. that but is that is that most common in voice centers across the country now, or is that not? Um, so I, I think it, the way that, you know, at fellowship versus kind of where I am now and fellowship, the voice therapists were so busy. Um, they were down the hall, but they were right there. Um, uh, and whereas in my, my practice now, and in, I know several other good friends who have voice practices, it's very common for at least a, a clinic or two, whether it's one or two days a week for, for, you know, you guys are going, you know, together through every, you know, cause you're so busy, you know, someone's scoping and you're scoping the other room and then you go in together and you look at them and I, you know, and then just as a, and then rewind even more as a resident, we were siloed, you know, the yeah. voice therapists and speech language pathologists, they were private practice. Right. They were going to get a, an appointment with them and then an appointment right. with, you know, um, you know, with me or with, with us. And it was, it was, it's, it's more challenging. I mean, it's tough to be a patient these days. You can't get a, an appointment for like months at a time right. anyway. Yeah. So. Right. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask was how often, like percentage, are you recommending voice, you and your team of your SLP and you, Adam, are you recommending voice therapy in 75% of your patients, like 50%, like what, what can you give us a percentage? So I tell everyone this, and um, I think we could all use voice therapy. I think I could use voice therapy and I've never done it. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of open with that, but you kind of, I would say over half of my patients I, I send for for um, either a, whether it's a dysphagia or, or dysphonia, they're usually going where our cough. Um, I mean, I, I um, tell them, I, I say, you know, yes, I could keep prescribing medicines, you know, but there's no surgery here. You need voice therapy, voice therapy, you know, especially for these more functional problems, you know, this is what you need. And, um, and I, we can talk about buy-in to voice therapy forever, which I think is really interesting as well. Um, but uh, yeah, o over 50%, certainly I I'm sending. Yeah. Are you recommending, uh, do you, do you, okay, here's another question. Do you, do you recommend medical management first, then voice therapy, or does it depend? Or is it voice therapy first, medical management or, or what? How do you, how does the, how does it go? It Great question. Depends. Um, uh, Karen, what, what, uh, Karen, what do you see? I'm curious. In my, in my question, experience, in my experience, it depends on the patient. It also depends on the physician. You know, it's funny. I, well, so I'm, I'm very biased. I, I have had patients come in who they say, well, I've been in voice therapy for a year. I go, whoa, 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 oh. whoa, whoa, whoa. 
That's not, uh, that's not good. That's not good voice therapy, we, Adam. You know, yeah. No. <laughs> I was like, I was like, who, who, who let you do this? And how is your insurance still paying? Right? I, you know, the way I explain voice therapy to patients is I say voice therapy is you know six to eight weeks, one hour a week for you to work with a voice therapist. You're going to get homework. You need to do that homework. You know, in order for you to you know make progress. Some people who have very clear medical pathology, who have you know every symptom of reflux and they, and they have a red larynx with post-cricoid edema. I say, all right, like, you know, we can try this, you know, but your dysphagia symptoms you're describing to me really seem like there's a tension component here. And I think, you know, you may benefit from swallow therapy. I'll kind of work with them and decide. Um, I see a lot of school of music patients at, at Temple where I am now. And I think almost any singer, actor, professional voice user would benefit from voice therapy. So I, a, a lot of them I send, you know, um, and they're, and they're usually the most engaged, excited, you know, they want to learn. So right. they're, they're a great group. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know if that answered your question. What do you yeah, think? No, it did. I mean, like it, it does depend on the patient. It, de it does depend on the physician. I would say that, right, Karen? That's For what sure. you're saying. Yeah. Well, and also like, what does the patient want? Like some right. people are like, oh, there's a lesion, cut it off, cut it off right now. And it's kind of like, hold on. <laughs> you know, and then other people are like, no, I want surgery. I want to avoid surgery at all costs. Like, mm -hmm. so like the patient's, the patient's voice does matter too, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, unfortunately, I think like a lot of people in our society would rather just have a surgery and like yes. swallow a pill. They just kind of like the one that like it. one and done. Cause like, let's face it, like changing behavior is hard. Yes. Changing it takes behavior, time. Being compliant and changing behavior. It's hard. It takes time. Yeah. It's work. It's, it's, it's work. Yeah. So it's Karen, work. and, and, and you yeah. are at a certain point placing a certain onus, like on the patient for them being responsible for themselves getting better. And that's something that's can be like, not everybody's open to that. Right. I, I wanted to make sure Karen, that you're able to talk briefly here about the interesting results you found with your dissertation. I wanted you to talk about implicit, explicit combination of the two. Define both of those. You don't have that much time. No. And tell and tell us what we should be doing in voice therapy based off of the recent results of your dissertation to inform <laughs> the you know advancing the field moving forward. Because what you found is really fascinating, and we need to all listen up. Okay, so um, basically. I compared three different types of instruction for voice therapy. Like, like forget, you know, motivation and like the other psychological factors that might be at play. But um, so implicit learning was basically you're you're learning, but you 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 know what to do, but you don't know why you're doing it or how it works. So that was here, make this sound, just imitate the sound. Well, what should I do with my tongue or my jaw? It doesn't matter, just do whatever feels comfortable with you, just make this sound. Explicit training was the opposite was so my task was a, a velar elevation task Ex explicit training was no auditory models no imitation it was like here's your velum here's exactly what the velum does and how it works here's a mirror and a pen light and like you're going to learn to manipulate your velum. And then the integrated group got both types of instruction. And um, essentially the integrated group outperformed the implicit only or the explicit only groups. And I found uh, statistical significance at phrase level. Um, there are also some key study design changes that I made. So a lot of our motor learning literature often only takes place over maybe two sessions that were like two days apart, maybe a week at most. But my study was a four week study. So by, uh, it was set up more similarly to voice therapy. So they came in once a week for four weeks and the task got progressively harder. 
each week. Yeah. And that, and that, that real, that revealed some really interesting patterns, some of which jives with previous literature, some of which, which does not. But I think a part of the problem of a lot of the current literature, you're only like capturing that short-term effect and studies aren't designed to actually like look out further in the learning curve. Mm -hmm. So what does, what should I be doing? What should the students be doing when they're doing voice therapy from your, you know, what suggestions do you have from those results? What should we be doing? um using a variety of methods so like there is there is something to be said for cognitive overload when it's too much about anatomy and it's too like information like there's th that can definitely get micromanaging and overwhelming mm -hmm. so there is at a certain point you do need to move into automaticity and okay don't worry about any of that here just do it and and i think the answer is you need to all be able to present both options and alternate back and forth mm -hmm. and let the patient be the guide like you can see when somebody's overwhelmed and when their performance is starting to tank mm -hmm. um uh on the flip side sometimes imitation is not good sometimes they'll be really good at it in, in the beginning and then the task will get harder and they don't know how or why they're doing what they're doing. So then they're not able to advance to the next level of difficulty, difficulty and they'll kind of plateau. Yeah. And in that situation, some explicit, more biomechanical directives could be helpful. Right. Okay. Um, but, so but, the it, point, but the point is, is that we need to be thinking about integrating. Correct. You know, we need to be using both um, imitation, auditory, perceptual, whatever it is, integrated with what's actually happening physiologically. Correct. Cause you get the best, you get the best of both worlds. If so there's, there's, there's disadvantages to implicit only or right. explicit only. If you're only doing one or the other implicit on its own is a little bit more stable, Okay. but the problem with it is you do, pla you, you do plateau and that, that person might not be able to adapt and they might not be able to like self detect and self correct their own errors. Yeah. But, uh, which is but, where the explicit information becomes helpful. But the problem with the current, I would say 95 to 99% of the voice therapy models in the literature are implicit only. Correct. Correct. So and that is based on- That's a problem. That is based on very old um, motor learning limb literature, which even that limb literature is now outdated. Yeah, so that is a huge shift in voice therapy we got to get clinicians thinking now, of so like basically we were parroting it was kind of it's basically the telephone game we were parroting these old like limb research from the 90s and even in very recent voice therapy models they're still citing that old 90s research and now when you follow the rabbit hole of the limb research in like the mid 2010s like you know the last five to seven years even the limb literature starting like there's other voices that are starting to not agree with it and uh the researchers in that field say hey maybe we need to like rethink some of this um <laughs> but, but, but that, that newer that newer argument and that newer thinking hasn't necessarily made it, it in, yeah made it here yet but no wonder why we have such high attrition rates right because we've okay. got 99 percent of what we're doing is implicit only that's a problem. No wonder why we have patients who don't come back to see us. So our job is to, we're going to help people do integrate both. That's, that's our that, that And the other caveat I would add is that if, when you're going to use biomechanical directives and explicit information, 
it does need to be accurate. Cause like, think about how many times like in singing lessons, they're like, oh, more air. And they don't need more air. Like that's just gonna like make the, that, that that's not what needs to happen. When the, a biomechanical directive is given and it doesn't match what is happening or what needs to happen, that can actually yeah. be harmful. Yeah. So like, so that's where like real-time biofeedback and that's why we need more research to actually yeah, yeah. correlate what we're hearing with what's actually going on. So we can make sure when right. we give that explicit biomechanical directive that it's accurate and pinpointed and it's actually effective. Yeah, no, that, that's great. That's a great point. Really important, really important co comments that, you know, what you're doing is so important for advancing outcomes and voice therapy. It's so important. We need to move the field beyond what we're currently doing. We're ready for the next step. I don't want to keep seeing the same presentations over and over again at these national no. meetings. We need to no. need to move beyond what we're doing. Um, so to end here, I want just wanted to offer one last question for both of you. What a future advice do you have for or for future speech language pathologists who are interested in voice who want to do this? Do you have any advice for them what they can do? to become the best voice specialized SLPs they can be. Adam, you go first. Yeah, I feel like Karen, you're, you, got, you got all the all the gold here. Um, but <laughs> but I, I feel like it's actually something you said, Karen, like I actually jotted this down for myself and you said it at the top of this um, talk, which was, I think a broad knowledge base of a foundation that is not just voice um, and specializing over the over time, you know, not only does it allow you to have a broad skill set, it allows you to make sure that this is what you, you know you are. Yes, you are. A, you want to do voice, you know. So it really serves multiple purposes. I think finding a great mentor. Um, I think you know, selfishly finding a great laryngologist. You know, <laughs> the saying. Um, yeah, yeah. All, I, we, we've got a few spaces open down in Houston. Um, yeah. So I, I I think that's just critical, and and having people like the both of you, you know, available to to teach teach folks how to how to do great work. I mean, invaluable. Awesome. What about Karen? Do you want to add anything? Um, I think, I think it goes back to that. Uh, just no matter what your specialty is, like if like as a medical SLP, you are a healthcare provider first, and you need to know how to communicate with other healthcare providers, and you need to understand the big medical picture, and you need to sharpen your diagnostic skills so you really actually know what's going on so then you can know if you're being effective or not um, and also having access to that person you know before i was in private practice ent i was either an outpatient or home health and sometimes you don't have complete records you're listening to this voice and like you're basically you yeah you have a script from the physician that says dysphonia on it and the patient tells you they got a tube stuck up their nose and like that's about all that you know um, so it, it really comes down to communication and access to other healthcare professionals and working on that just medical knowledge base first. So you understand where, what your role and where your intervention fits in with the rest of the picture so that you're doing your, that patient, the best service that you can be. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This was so wonderful. I learned so much. It was so nice talking with both of you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.